Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. So let's jump in. Here's Jeremiah 31. Listen to this. This is God's word. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray together. Lord, we are reminded that uh, as rain's coming down out of the sky, that your word is like that. Your word comes down to us and it falls and it produces things in our lives. Your word has true, real, transformative power. So we ask today, Holy Spirit, that you would, that you would make the soil of our hearts, that you would make the core of our being receptive to the life-changing truth of God's word. And that in order to change, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus. And in seeing you, Jesus, and what you've done on the cross and, and your power in, in walking out of the tomb, may that same power come into our lives afresh. Holy Spirit, give us a deep down desire, deeper down desire, deep, deep down desire to want to be more like Christ and to be more thankful for him. For we do pray in his name. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about this. The gospel is invincible. That's what I want to show you from this text. The gospel is invincible. Isn't that hard to remember? Isn't it, isn't it hard to remember that when we go through normal things in life? It's so easy to forget that the gospel is invincible. I don't know what kind of week you've had. Maybe you've had a great week. Maybe it's been terrible. I don't know. My week has been tumultuous. I've had some really good highs. Um, one of my daughters had senior prom last night. My other one got her driver's license this week. These are two really big things in their lives. Things we're celebrating. But I've had other things this week that have been challenging, to say the least, and difficult. And it's really hard to remember through all things that the gospel is invincible. It's hard to remember that the gospel doesn't grow old. It's hard to remember that the gospel is always relevant in every situation, throughout history, in every epoch of time. The gospel is always relevant. 
It's hard to remember that the gospel is invincible, meaning that all the circumstances in our lives never dilute the gospel. Circumstances don't dilute it either. And it's hard to remember all of those things. When we look at Jeremiah 31, that's the point that God is trying to get deep down into us. That his word, the gospel, is invincible. And so I hope this morning that as we go through this text together, that it will be a, a time in which you can hit reset. It will be a time in which maybe you need this, I don't know, in which you can just exhale. A time in which maybe you need to take a big inhale of truth before you exhale. But I hope something along those lines happened for you this morning. So what we're going to do in thinking about the gospel's invincible is look at exile, two powerful phrases, and new covenant. That's where we're going this morning on our journey. Exile, two powerful phrases, and the new covenant. Ready? Ready to jump in? Well, let's go. If you notice, if we're going to understand this passage, we, we got to figure out where we are. We got to figure out where we are in the Bible. So remember that God raised up David to be king. Following David ruling, his son Solomon became king. After Solomon ruled, the kingdom was actually split. It actually divided. And following that, God's people were so unfaithful that God said, you are going to go into captivity. The northern part and the southern part, the splitting of the kingdom in north and south. God said, you're going to go into captivity. But what's going to happen is that I will bring you back. Jeremiah starts writing around the year 620 B.C. And he writes to this people to communicate the truth of God, to tell them that they're going to go into captivity, but one day there will be restoration. In other words, they're going to live like exiles. They're going to live as exiles in a foreign land. And beloved, this should be no surprise to us at all. Because we've been thinking about the life we've been given through the four-part story. It should be no surprise to anyone here this morning, if you've been here for any length of time, to realize that exile is real and we actually are all living in exile now. When God created the world, he created us in the world, on the earth, and that was home where we were with God. But then rebellion came and guess what? God removed us from the garden and we've been in exile ever since. But Jesus has come, and he has come to restore our relationship with God and ultimately to bring us home, or better, to bring home to us. Did you notice the call to worship this morning from Psalm 90, written by Moses? That God has been our dwelling place. Do you want to know where home actually is? It isn't 302 Pinewood for me. It's not Greenville, North Carolina. Ultimately, home is with God. And one day, because of what Christ has, do, has done, God will return. Heaven and earth will be reunited, and we won't be exiles any longer. But until then, we can resonate with the audience of Jeremiah. We are the audience because we are living in exile in a world that is horribly broken, knowing ourselves to be broken and sinful and rebellious. But knowing that we have hope, 
because of Christ and who he is and what he's done. So don't forget that we're in exile. Two powerful phrases. Two powerful phrases that we get to receive, that we get to think about while living in exile. Two powerful phrases. If you look in verse 2 and you look in verse 3, we have two of the most profound statements in all of the Old Testament, even in all of the Bible. Here's one. While we're living in exile, God speaks to his people and he says, they found grace in the wilderness. Did you catch that? And right after that, God says that he has loved us with an everlasting love. Did you read that? Did you get that? When you are living in exile, while I am living in exile, these two phrases are profoundly important and powerful. You can find grace while living in exile. And that God has loved you with an everlasting love. What that means is to find grace in exile. This is nothing new either. It's just that God states it for us right here together so we can wrestle with it and think about it while we're in exile. You realize that when God removed Adam and Eve from the garden, it was an act of grace. You realize that when we continued to rebel and things were just getting worse and worse to the point where God would say that every inclination and intent of our heart was only evil continually. That God had mercy on Noah and his family and Abraham and his family. That was the grace of God. Not leaving us to do what we want to do, but to break in and change things. It was God's grace that led his people out of Egypt when they couldn't get out. It was God's grace that parted the Red Sea so they could leave. It was God's grace that provided manna in the wilderness. It was God's grace that promised that he would bring his people into the land. It was God's grace that split the Jordan. It was God's grace that raised up judges. It was God's grace that removed Saul. It was God's grace that appointed David. It's God's grace that he told them that they were gonna enter into captivity. And it's God's grace in which he tells them that I will bring you out of captivity and things will be better. It's all the grace of God from beginning to end. And that means if you're here this morning, it doesn't matter where you are, you can find grace. There is grace for you. There is someone who is working in ways you can't even imagine. And his grace is freely offered to you. And it's not just the grace of God. It's that you would know his love that is everlasting and unchanging. That you would realize and take in that God is a God who loves his people. You know, I named my oldest uh, Owen. It's named after a guy that lived 400 years ago. And one of his statements that really undid me, many of them, but one of them was this. This is in his book on communion with God. The greatest unkindness that we can show to God is not believing that he loves us. The greatest unkindness that we can do to our Father is to believe that he doesn't love us. 
This morning in Sunday school, we just spent some time thinking about, among other things, what is God's, what is God's disposition towards you? What's the look on his face? Beloved, God says when you're living in exile, you can find grace and there is an everlasting love that doesn't give up, doesn't quit, doesn't stop. It's always, it's forever. And this message of the love of God is so unique because every other message of love that you hear and have to deal with on a daily basis, every other supposed love that you have to deal with during the week, 40, 50, 60 hours a week through your job, this supposed love, if it even is there in your work and your calling, is completely different than the love of God. Everything else says, if you love me, I'll love you. Every other love says, do this and I'll love you. Do that and I won't. This is the love of God. The love of God predates our love. The love of God says, I have loved you. I have done everything for you. Therefore, as a result of my love for you, love me. Do you see the difference? Do you hear the difference? It's amazing to live in light of that difference in which to receive the love of God is to receive a love that we can't find anywhere else. It's the love that we are supposed to give and show to the world. It's what makes us unique as those that follow Jesus, that we actually get to love others not because they've done something or haven't done something. We love because we're supposed to love. God has loved us first. Our love is always a response to what he has done. And that means, yes, as you sit here this morning, that God has set his love upon you, not because he was determining or saw what he could get out of you. He loved you because he loved you. God is saying, when you live in exile, don't forget these powerful phrases and statements. You can find grace, and the love of God is a forever love. In other words, what would life what would your life really be like if you believed God loved you? How would your life be different if you really deep down believed that God himself loved you? How would your life be different if you believed God really loved you? Do you think your priorities would be different? Do you think the way that you spent your time would be different? If you really believed that God loved you, do you think you'd be more generous? because you wouldn't be trying to find your security in what you think you can get in clinging to your financial things? If you really believed in the love of God, wouldn't it make you more generous? Wouldn't it make you more forgiving? If you really believed in the love of God and you really knew how much he has forgiven you, wouldn't that result in your ability to forgive others? If you really believed in the love of God, I mean, deep down believed in the love of God, wouldn't it mean that you were harder to offend? You see, if you really believe in the love of God, it's gonna be really hard to offend you because you believe that the greatest being in the universe loves you and everybody else is just like you, a creature. May have better skills than you in some ways than others, but at the end of the day, you don't ultimately, their, their love won't satisfy you. 
but God's will. And if you had the love of God deeper in your heart, if I had the love of God deeper in my heart, I would forgive more quickly. I would be a lot harder to offend because my insecurities would be evaporating. My insecurities would be shrinking because of the love of God. Because what God says about me, that he's gracious and he loves me unconditionally, would fill my heart. And I would find my identity there. And it would mean that I could go about my day, go about my week, not having to worry like I often do. How would your life be different if you really believed in the love of God? Would it mean that you could endure suffering differently? If you really believed in the love of God, wouldn't it change you living in exile right now? Wouldn't it mean that you could look at the difficult things in your life and have greater perspective? Wouldn't it create patience in us? How would your life be different if you really believed in the love of God, that he loves you? Friends, it's not wrong for you to pray that you would know that more deeply. You want some action items, you want some takeaways, Try that. This week, maybe ask God, Lord, would you convince me more and more of your love? Would you help me to find it in the places where you say that you love me? Like worship, like song, like hearing forgiveness that he pronounces over us in Hebrews? Like the the table where we get to experience his love? Lord, help me to know that you love me more in the areas where you say that you're communicating your love, Lord. Help me to receive that. Well, that leads to the new covenant. You see, when we read verses 31 through 34, we have God saying that a time is coming in which there's going to be a new covenant. It's not like the old one where my people kept breaking it. This one's new. So what does it mean? What is a covenant? Well, very briefly, very briefly, over, to overstate it, to oversimplify it. A covenant relationship is where two parties give up something of their independence in order to build their relationship. That's what a covenant is. You can see it in marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Two people give up something of their independence in order to prioritize the relationship. In other words, Transactional encounters and transactional relationships are all about uh, the individual and individual needs as greater than the relationship. But in a covenant relationship, individual needs are secondary, tertiary compared to the relationship itself. Because the commitment and the relationship of the two together is more important than individual needs. Because there's a joining together, two becoming one. So when God says that a new covenant is coming, he wants us to realize that God is communicating that he is coming after his people in the best possible way. And that he's gonna be giving something up, if you will, in order to prioritize the relationship. 
so that by grace we might in turn respond and say, Lord, I'm willing to give up my independence so that I might build a relationship with you and know that you have done everything for this relationship. You see how that works? Well, here's another thing about covenant. When we think about the new covenant, you need to know that God says this to us because he's actually dealing with a tension that is growing and building in the Old Testament. Now, hang in there with me. If you need to, put your thinking cap on. People still do that? Put your thinking cap. I need you to think about it. I need you to think hard with me, all right? There is a tension that is in the Old Testament, and the new covenant answers this tension. God knows it's there. You do. You might not have thought about it, but I'm going to bring it to light, I hope, and I hope you'll stay with me. When you read the Old Testament, you can wonder in very profound ways. You can wonder, hey, is this relationship with God conditional or unconditional? You can read the Old Testament and wonder that, can't you? I mean, there are all kinds of scriptures that say, God says, hey, if you obey me, there's going to be blessing. If you disobey, there's going to be curse, right? There's all kinds of scriptures that say that. So you might read those passages and think, well, is my relation with God conditional? But you can also read tons of scripture passages where God says things like this. I love you. I'm going to pursue you. You may wander far away, but I'm going to come and bring you back. There are all kinds of things where God's saying, I didn't love you because you were strong. I didn't love you because you were mighty in number. I didn't love you because you were better than other people. As a matter of fact, you were weak and you were helpless. So you read those unconditional passages and you think to yourself, well, what is it, conditional or unconditional? Because this tension is growing and growing and growing in the Old Testament. And if you'll allow me, I want to press this because I want you to see how profoundly it affects us. Most of us have grown up learning that the Old Testament is basically only conditional. So you read the Old Testament and what do you get? A lesson in which you get a moral principle in which you obey so that you read the Old Testament as if it is entirely conditional. And either from there you go to think that the New Testament is something profoundly different and you ignore the Old Testament or you just get confused, or whatever else it can happen. But you can read the Old Testament and just think, well, this is just conditional. I've got to follow this out. Do you remember the guy that uh, did the Veggie Tales? I don't remember his name right now. For, it slipped my mind. You remember what he said a few years ago? That he was reflecting on his, on his, uh, on his work of Veggie Tales, and he says, I realized that I spent my whole time communicating how people should behave Christianly not teaching what Christianity is. He has a podcast where he plays all that out. Most of us have learned the Bible through that conditional lens. And what that means is that we're missing something. The tension's there. Someone has just decided that it's all conditional, not unconditional. What are we gonna do about this? Well, let me press it even more. When you look at your own life and how you relate to others, there may be many of you who relate to others basically through rules. You know that everything's a condition. And that means when you look at other people and relate to other people, everything is about performance. Your performance, their performance, 
So you're constantly thinking about what people are doing or people are not doing. So that everything in how you relate to people and even yourself is entirely wrapped up with conditional, a conditional way of living. And that means that you can't help but judge people all the time and wonder how you compare to them. And it means that oftentimes you crush people and you don't even even realize it. It means that deep down you probably really hate yourself because you never see yourself as measuring up to anything. And it might mean that you have a tendency to dislike other people and assume the worst about everyone. All because everything in your makeup, everything in the way that you process life, yourself and other people in every relationship is conditional. And maybe some of you are on the other end in which there are basically no conditions and people just walk all over you and you assume the best about everyone. There's no boundaries in your life. And you, I bet, at times also hate yourself. And you can see whether you relate to everybody through rules and only rules or no rules at all, you can see how profoundly broken either of those are. It's not the way to live. Now we zoom back out. This tension is growing. And how in the world do we understand? Is our relationship with God conditional or unconditional? And God says, well, I'm gonna give you the new covenant because that's what solves this tension. Because the crux of the new covenant is this guy named Jesus. Matter of fact, you're gonna hear it this morning when we come to the table. This is the new covenant in my blood, right? In other words, if you wanna understand our relationship with Jesus and what is it, conditional or unconditional, the answer is, Jesus. Jesus is the one that has met all the conditions that are laid out for us. And he is the one that pursued us unconditionally and has come to us to be our literal savior and to rescue us. So that our relationship with God is conditional and profoundly unconditional. His relationship with us is conditional and there are all the conditions that you can't meet, I can't meet, and we never will, but Jesus has. And because of what Jesus has done, God looks upon us through his own son. So the Spirit never stops convincing us that the word of God, the commands of God are true and beautiful and they work truth into our lives and we're shaped by them. And the Spirit never lets us move away from understanding that it's only in Christ that we have all of those things that God expects and demands. So God is saying this tension that you may feel, it's actually answered in Jesus. Well, that leads to this. What does it mean when it says the new covenant? What's so new about the new covenant? Well, let me tell you a few things. Again, hang in there with me. What's new about the new covenant? Well, the first new thing is this. Because of Jesus, there is this togetherness. Just to repeat what we just talked about. God's commands and his conditions and his unconditional love is brought together in Jesus. So ultimately, we never read the Old Testament rightly until we see Christ in every story. 
He's the one that meets all the conditions. He's the one that absorbs the curses. He's the one that all the blessings are there. He's the one that comes to us with the love of God. So we've never read the Old Testament right unless we read every story as telling us about our Savior and all that he has done for us. The new covenant means what's new about it is there's togetherness because of Jesus. The second thing is this. It's not just that the new covenant shows us togetherness that we haven't seen as clearly before until the coming of Christ. It also communicates to us perpetuity. Perpetuity. The new covenant is perpetual, even eternal. Meaning this. If you were alive and received this originally from Jeremiah, you would be living in a time in which you would have to travel to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice for your sin. And guess what? You'd have to do that all the time. You'd have to do that every year. You'd have to do it throughout the year. But when Christ has come, guess what? He died once and never to be repeated. In other words, as you receive Jesus and see him in the Old Testament sacrifices as the final sacrifice, that means that in him, what he has accomplished is perpetual. It never has to be repeated. It's final, ultimate, comprehensive, exhaustive, all that you need. So there's no reason for you to doubt anymore the love of God for you. There's no reason to doubt forgiveness because Christ has accomplished everything that was in types and shadows in the Old Testament. So that in Jesus and what he has done, the significance of his death and the significance of his resurrection is perpetual. And that means God remembers your sin no more. In the Old Testament, you'd have to offer another goat, a ram, what Chad was talking about today, you'd have to offer a lamb, you'd have to offer a dove, you'd have, to, you'd have to do it again and again and again. But now, beloved, we get to celebrate that the final one has happened. It is perpetual. The next thing about the newness of the new covenant is that it's personal. It's personal. What's new about the new covenant is that it is personal. I want to show that to you in this text. In this language, God says that he takes the law and writes it on our hearts. Beloved, that is to say that we can no longer, wrongly, we can no longer think that the the law of God is just this external conformity. We can't be tempted to think that anymore. And we can't give in to that temptation. The law of God by grace is written on the inside of us where God takes out a heart of stone and he gives us a soft heart that has his will written inside of us. And because of Jesus, we now have the power to do it. And the spirit is working that in us. And let me tell you the other way that this is personal. And I hope that this grips you even more. Beloved, if we were still living in the Old Testament and you brought your lamb, you brought your ram, you brought your goat, dove, whatever it was, let me tell you something. Those animals didn't know your name and Jesus does. It's personal because Christ has come and he has come for his people. He has come for you by name. 
So when he's dying on the cross, he is dying for Dave. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and who loved me. Beloved, the new covenant is better because it's intimately personal in a way that the Old Testament was not. And finally, God is telling us that the new covenant is new because there is a greater day that's yet to come. This text tells us that the day is coming in which we will no longer have to tell other people about the Lord because they will all know him. Did you catch that? There's a greater day that's yet to come. The day is coming in which we aren't gonna have to evangelize and talk to people about it. The day is coming in which everyone will know the Lord. That sounds pretty amazing to me. I don't know about you. That sounds, well, I'll be out of a job, which nothing wrong with that, okay? A greater day is yet to come. And that means while we live in exile, there's hope. But while we live in exile, there's tears. Part I didn't read to you is in verse 15 of this chapter mentions Rachel's tears. If you go back and read verse 15 of this, there are only three times in the Bible in which Rachel's tears are mentioned. The first is in Genesis 38 in which Rachel is crying because she is going to die while giving birth to her son. The next time it's mentioned is in Jeremiah 31 here, in which we are reminded that as people, God's people were going into captivity, there was going to be tremendous loss. Loss of hopes and dreams. Plans were wrecked. Assyria and Babylon were not exactly kind in coming and taking God's people into captivity. Living in exile means there will be tears, loss, profound suffering, and sorrow. But Rachel's tears are mentioned in Matthew chapter two, at the birth of Jesus, in whose life would bring an end to the tears of sorrow once and for all. So that when Christ has come and when Christ has accomplished all that the Father has given him, that the day will come, friends, in which we won't cry anymore. At least not of sorrow. There will be tears of joy and laughter and celebration and worship because our Christ has accomplished everything and we will see it and we won't have to tell anyone to know the Lord anymore because our God will be all in all. And God is saying the greater day is yet to come in which the tears of my people will be dried up. Until then, I'll uh, keep them in my bottle, as God says, and count them. And that day, I'll get to wipe them away from your eyes. That's what God is telling us. His gospel is invincible. When you are in exile and know the tears of living in exile, you can find grace and you can know the love of God, but you're still gonna have tears and sorrow. But you have on this side of Christ's coming, you have all the benefits of knowing that he has come. 
You're just waiting and anticipating his return. You're just waiting for the day in which he returns and tears will be no more. And that's why we come to the table to celebrate this invincibility. The invincibility of the gospel and what Christ has done. On the night that Jesus